Uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 31 as we continue our series called Christianity's Biggest Questions. Christianity's Biggest Questions. Hear the reading of God's Word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text with the question, is Jesus really the only way? Is Jesus really the only way? Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you, as always, you are the God who speaks. And so make us the people who listen. Help us not only to be listeners of the word, but to be doers of the word. And so as we hear your word, may it go deep into our hearts and may it find good soil that your spirit has prepared for it and that it would bear great fruit and we would do what you have called us to do by faith. We ask that you do it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. There's an old uh, parable that's often titled The Blind Men and the Elephant. And this parable has transcended cultures and continents and centuries. And the earliest versions go all the way back to uh, ancient Hindu and Buddhist sacred texts. Uh, But the the parable in various versions has made its way into Western culture uh, in the 19th century through a poet by the name of John Godfrey Sachs who wrote a a poem that was uh, expressing this parable in poetry. And so you may have heard variations of it because it's been around a while, but it goes something like this. There's a few blind men who come into contact with an elephant for the very first time, and they have never uh, experienced an elephant, and so they're trying to figure out what it is by just touching it. And so the first blind man goes up to the elephant, and he grabs uh, its trunk, and it thinks it's, or he thinks it's a snake. And then the next person goes and, and he grabs its leg and he thinks now this is a tree trunk. And then the next person goes and grabs his, his ear and he thinks this must be a fan. And the next person goes and grabs its tail and, 
As he grabs his tail, he thinks, oh, this must be a rope. And then the next person goes and grabs uh, his side and pushes up against his side and thinks, this must be a heavy wall. And right, one by one, all these guys, they're going trying to figure out what is this thing we're experiencing, and not any of them have a a clue of what the whole is, right? They they are only limited to the, the small portion that they are able to touch and experience. And so this parable in all of its various uh, you know, versions has been used to, to describe all kinds of things in different fields of study, but, but it often comes back to this issue of how do you experience truth? What is our experience of truth? And it's often used to illustrate world religions. Maybe you've heard it in that context before, and it's, it's described and argued like this, that all the world religions have just one piece of the elephant, They all have just one segment of truth, but not the whole truth. And so the idea that they're trying to communicate as they tell this parable is that really no one has an exclusive claim to truth. No one can experience the entire elephant, is the idea. Now, is that right? That's what we're going to look at a little bit today. Is that right? Which is an ironic question about truth. But is, is it right? Because it, it has a certain appeal to us, I think, in our culture where uh, it, it's almost offensive for someone to come up to you and to say, I believe that this is what you should believe. Right? In our culture, it, it's much more common that someone would say, this is what I believe, this is what's true for me, and if you want to believe something different, that can be true for you. You know, I'm going to have my truth and you can have your truth. And so if someone comes up to you and says, this, this is what I believe is true, not just for me, but it's true for everybody, it sounds offensive. And so the parable can be very appealing in our culture where we think, yeah, that makes a lot more sense that everyone has their own version of the truth or everyone has a piece of the truth, but no one has an exclusive claim until you read what Jesus says. And then when you get to the Bible and you read what Jesus says, in John chapter 14, Jesus famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says after that, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what do you do with that? When Jesus says he is the way, the truth, the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, it's one of the most controversial things that Jesus says in the entire New Testament, and it's very difficult in our context today. Is Jesus really the only way? In short, I would say yes, but what we're going to look at today is why. Why is that true? So today we're continuing this series on uh, Christianity's biggest questions, and last week we opened up the series thinking about uh, what do I do with my doubts, right? This whole series is going to cover questions that are big questions, much bigger than 35 minutes in a sermon, so I'll do my best, but these are huge questions, And, and so last week we looked at what do I do with my doubts? If I've got doubts about my faith, how do I handle that? So you can go back and listen to that if you missed the first one. This week we're now picking up the first question that we're going to apply that to, and it's this question, is Jesus really the only way? And so as we dive into this text, we're looking in the book of Acts, which the book of Acts is the story of the early church on mission. 
So the early church is on mission, preaching the gospel of Jesus, and now we're in the story where uh, Paul is preaching in the city of Berea. If you back up a little bit to give you some context, he's preaching in the city of Berea, and as he's preaching, which is very common when you preach the gospel, some people believe and some don't, right? And not only do they not believe what Paul is saying, they get angry at what Paul is saying. In fact, they get so angry, they're about to start a riot. And so Paul's friends are like, hey, we got to get you out of the city. These people want to kill you, Paul. And so they smuggle him out of the city and put him on a boat and they send him to Athens. And when Paul gets to Athens, that's where we pick up our story. He finds a city full of many ways, many truths, many ways of pursuing life, right? And so Paul is immediately confronted with the question we're dealing with today. Is Jesus really the only way? That's what I want to look at. So we're going to ask that question. First, we're going to look at the inclusivity of religion, the inclusivity of religion. If you're taking notes today, that's the first point. Uh, The story begins back in verse 16. Look, Look at what it says here. I know we didn't read this earlier, but look back at verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now pause there for a second. Athens, Athens would have been magical to Paul. Think about Paul. Paul's growing up in the small town of Tarsus, and, and Paul is, is this intellectual giant, even as a young kid probably. And so he, he's that kid in class who makes everyone frustrated. Right? He's answering all the questions. He's, he's questioning the teacher. He, he's you know, pushing back on things, challenging things. He's thinking outside the box. He, he's that kind of thinker. He's a true intellectual. And so Paul, his whole life has been hearing about Athens because Athens is the center of intellectual life in their culture. Athens was where Plato was. It's where Aristotle was. I mean, this is where major philosophers and famous writers and authors had been. You could walk the streets of Athens and you'd see artwork that had been, you know, just incredible artwork in that time period. And so you're walking through this city full of culture, full of intellect. And Paul probably at this point had never been to Athens. And so he'd heard the stories, he'd read the philosophies, he dreamed of this day. And then when he arrives, he's not impressed. When he arrives to Athens, it says in the Bible, it says his spirit was provoked. The language there is this sense of like, you, you've got this knot in your stomach, you just feel sick to your, to your stomach. Something, something is wrong here, right? So why does he feel this way? It says right after that, that the city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. This, this city is smothered like biscuits and gravy, just full of idols everywhere you look. I mean, one of the historians in this time, one of the Greek historians said it was easier to find an idol in Athens than a person. There were just so many gods, and Paul experiences all these gods at the same time. He's just overwhelmed. It provokes him in the depths of who he is. And so he says to this crowd that he's speaking to in verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, every way, you are very religious. In other words, the city of Athens is this picture of humanity. The city of Athens is a picture of every human heart, every human culture. There is this idolatry. In other words, all people, all people are religious people. 
Stick with me for a second. So in 1908, uh, 1908, the Model T, you may have heard of the Model T, it transformed the way people move around the planet. The Model T transformed things because at that time, Henry Ford had this dream that every household would have an automobile. Because at that time, cars were extremely expensive, they were custom made, they were more of like a luxury handcrafted item, and so most people didn't have cars. Most people, it was out of their range of what they could afford. And so Henry Ford had this idea that maybe we could find a way to make everyone be able to afford a car. And so, famously, he goes to work on uh, expanding upon the... Uh, the uh, assembly line and, and, and their idea was, you know, if you can make more cars with less labor, then you can lower the price. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. They lowered the price of a car from $900 to $300. Now, some of y'all are like, I want to find the $900 car and I'll be happy with that, right? Because it's expensive right now what's going on in, the, in this world. Uh, but $900 at the time, just imagine if cars cost $75,000 and they got lowered to $25,000. It may still be expensive, but it's more within the range of reality for the majority of people, right? It, it got cut down to a third of the price. And so now what's happening is they're making all these cars and they started to make, or they, they, be, uh, they began to make so many that there were 15 million Model Ts created. 15 million. And so what, be, what was uh, at one time rare now became everywhere. It's everywhere today. Cars are everywhere. Listen, this, this is what Paul is experiencing. This, this is the picture of idolatry that Paul is experiencing. John Calvin once said it like this. He said, our heart is an idol factory. It's just putting out so many idols, you, you can't even contain what's happening. And what I want to say here is, we all worship something. We all worship something. It's what the Bible calls idolatry, right? An idol is defined as, a, as making a good thing into a God thing. It's taking something that God has created for good, whatever that thing may be, and it now has been elevated to the status of God thing, and it begins to be worshipped. One, one former archbishop, William Temple, he said it this way. He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Think about that. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he's saying by that is he's saying, in your solitude, what comes out of your heart, what, what enters into your mind, what, what do you think about, what drives your daydreaming, what, what drives your passions and your, your uh, questions, and what, what fills your mind and your heart as you have just that moment where you can finally slow down, and now your heart is able to, to really catch up to what's happening. What is filling your solitude? That is often your religion. It's your idol. It's whatever that good thing is that has become now this God thing that is consuming your life. I mean, it could be anything. Think about just something simple as approval, right? Something as simple as approval. Maybe, maybe you post something on Instagram or TikTok or if you're old school, Facebook, right? You, you, you post something and then you're, you're on the edge of your seat trying to find out who's going to like it, who's going to share it, Who's, who's going to comment on it? And because you're, you're just desperate for someone to, to give you that approval because it's not just a way of communication for you anymore. This is a way of me finding my identity. And so now approval has been elevated from a good thing 
to a God thing. You see that? And so in your solitude, as you're sitting there, you're thinking, man, I wonder if someone has liked my post yet. But let me go on there and check. Right? This is the kind of stuff that happens. I mean, it could be anything. It could be, it could be kids. Think about that. I mean, children are a wonderful blessing of the Lord. They are, they are good. They are wonderful. But did you know children can be idols? Because you know, you could take the blessing that God has given you in your child and you now elevate it to another God in your household and now your child is the thing that is worshipped in the house. And so in your solitude, your solitude is full of worry and anxiety about your kid. Your solitude is, is full of uh, anxiety about what other people think about my kid. You know, do they approve of them? Are they you know, successful enough? Are they smart enough? Do they, are they behaved well enough at school? Are they whatever, right? And it can consume all your thoughts, all your emotions. Your whole life is now consumed by your kid, right? This is how idolatry works. It's taking any good thing and making it a God thing. So what I'm trying to say is this. Just very simple. Everyone is religious. Everyone. Right? You might be hearing that and you're thinking, no, I mean, I don't, I don't even believe in God. And, and if, I, if I believe in God, I'm not sure I believe in the Christian God. How can you say I'm religious? Here, here's why. You may not have an organized religion. You may not have a religion that has a name. But you are spiritual in that you worship something. You, you worship because you were created by God for God to worship God. And so if you don't worship him, you're going to worship something. You're going to worship money. You're going to worship relationships. You're going to worship pleasure. You're going to worship control. Whatever it is in your life that, that you have put your desires upon, you're going to worship something. And so the question is not, are we religious people? Are we spiritual people? Really, the question is, what does your religious uh, leanings, what, what does your spirituality push you towards? Where, where is it taking you? And that's what I want us to look at next. Is it, it really brings us to the exclusivity of Jesus. This is the second point, the exclusivity of Jesus. Paul says to them in verse 23, look at what he says. He says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, the Greeks had lots of gods, right? Paul already says that this city was full of gods. They had Zeus and Eris and Apollo and Athena. And, you know, you could go on, hundreds and hundreds of gods. <clears throat> and uh, just to make sure they didn't miss one, that they wanted to be positive they didn't miss one, they put up an altar with the, the inscription to the unknown God. Right, Just in case, out of all these hundreds or thousands of gods we have, we missed one, we want to make sure we worship the unknown God and be safe. It's kind of like an insurance policy, right? And so Paul sees this as he's walking around and he's seeing all these idols, and he says, look, the one that you've been worshiping and calling the unknown God, I want to make him known to you because he's made himself known. And so Paul starts to expand upon this, and he says, listen, this unknown God, the one that you call unknown, he's made himself known in that he is the creator of all things. And Paul talks about the one true God creating everything you see. He's created the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the rivers. He's created all of it. And not only that, he's created all people, all languages, all places. He, he, he uses this, this principle of, of the unity of all things being unified in the one true God. He says, this unknown God 
is the one true God. And because there's only one true God, Paul says there's only one end to the search for God. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I love that imagery. It's so powerful. He, he's using this imagery of being in the dark. Where You ever been in the dark? You're trying to kind of feel your way around, touching the walls, touching the, the furniture. You're, you're trying to feel your way around until you find what you're looking for. He says when we're, uh, when we're worshiping idols, this is what's happening. We're, kind of, we're trying to feel our way through creation until we find the one true God. But there's only one end to the search. Because there's only one true God. This is what Jesus means when Jesus says to the crowd in John 14 that we talked about. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He, he's saying to the people, he's saying, you can be searching in all these other things. You could be searching in another religion. You could be searching in a woman or a guy. You could be searching in your job. You can be searching in all these other things, but there is only one way. It's going to be through me. There's no other end to the search. Right? Jesus is the only end to the search for God. The only end. Lord, make me holy, but not yet. That was the prayer of Augustine of Hippo, this young man who, who grew up in North Africa in the fourth century. And Augustine grew up in a family that uh, had a, a believing mother and an unbelieving father. And as he grew up and got older and went off to, to school, he decided he was going to push away from his mom's beliefs. He, he didn't want anything to do with her Christian faith. And so he goes off to school and he kind of lives his life and he goes wild. Augustine starts to, to live partying, going from one party to the next party. He starts to uh, you know, mess around with lots of different women and he's, he's going from one pleasure experience to the next pleasure experience. But then when that wasn't enough, he started to seek out uh, philosophy and religion. And so he went from one philosophy to the next philosophy, to the next religion, to the next religion. And he's going around, bouncing around until one day he sits down on a summer afternoon. And after he'd been searching restlessly, trying to find out how do I have fulfillment? How do I find this God that I've been searching for? He sits down, he reads the Bible. He opens up to the book of Romans and he reads the book of Romans. And right there on a, on a little bench, he comes to faith in Jesus. He surrenders his life to Jesus. And Augustine would become one of the most influential leaders and writers in all of church history. I mean, the whole Western church is pretty much founded on Augustine's writings. And think about it. This is what he wrote in his journal later. He said, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Until they find their rest in him. Why? I mean, why is that true? Why, why was Paul saying that to the people in Athens? Why was Jesus saying that to the crowds? Why did Augustine see that in his own experience? Why is it true that Jesus is the exclusive end to our restless search? One of my favorite answers comes from Mark chapter 2. Uh, Mark chapter 2, uh, in that story, Jesus is teaching in a house that's packed the house is full of people coming to hear Jesus teach, coming to hear uh, what, what Jesus has to say, and also to be healed by Jesus. And so the crowds are, are pushing into the house that's full of people, and these four men come with their friend who's paralyzed because they want Jesus to heal him. And so when they show up to the house, they're a little bit late, so there's people everywhere, there's people pouring out the door, Mark tells us, and so they can't get into the house. 
And so they realize we're going to have to either turn back and leave or we're going to have to find another way in. And they've come too far. They're, they're not going back. And so they decide they're going to carry their friend on, on the stretcher around the back of the house and up the stairs onto the roof. And the roof in this time period in, in their, in their uh, area was basically made out of palm branches and mud kind of packed in together. And so when they get on the roof... They get down on their hands and knees and they start tearing through the roof, digging into the roof. And you can imagine Jesus inside the house. He's teaching to these crowds of people. He's healing people. And all of a sudden he looks up and he sees dirt falling from the ceiling. And then he looks up and he sees a little hole forming and there's light coming into the room because someone is coming through the roof. And sure enough, as the hole gets big enough, they lower their friend down into the room. And right there in the middle of the room lies this man. And Jesus sees their faith and he says to them, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? I, I, I thought they were going there to get him healed. It's so confusing. No one knows what's going on. But the thing that makes the religious leaders angry more than confused is that Jesus said his sins are forgiven. And so this is what they say. They say, uh, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so to prove his authority to forgive sins, Jesus looks at the man and he says, rise, take up your mat and walk. And the man gets up and he walks out the room. Now listen. The, the religious leaders, they, they weren't wrong in their premise. Their premise was that only God can forgive sins. They were wrong in their conclusion that Jesus wasn't God. But he is. See, Jesus proves them wrong. He, he proves what makes him exclusive. Listen, what makes him exclusive is he's fully man and fully God. This is what makes him unique, what sets him apart from everyone else, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other belief system, is that Jesus alone is the one who says, I am fully man and fully God. See, only a Savior who's fully human can be our substitute, right? Jesus lives with perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus lives with perfect love but he offers his life in that perfect love as the one who can offer a perfect sacrifice he's the only one who can do that someone else may offer their life for you someone else may offer to die for you but no one else can offer a perfect life for you no one else can offer a spotless life for you only Jesus. And so he had to be perfect in his humanity, but fully human. But not only that, he had to be fully God. And so the old Heidelberg Catechism, it says it like this way. He says, or it says, uh, he must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. What it's saying is this, it's saying even though Jesus had to be fully man, he also had to be fully God because only God himself can bear all the burden of our guilt. Only God himself can bear all the shame of our sin. Only God can bear all that it is to be us in our brokenness. Only God can bear that. And so if Jesus was only man, he wouldn't be able to take all your sin 
all your past, all your present, all your future. He wouldn't be able to bear it, but he is God. And so he is God who can bear all these things in our place, which makes him exclusive. Do you hear that? Do you understand why Jesus is saying, I'm the only way? Because there's no one else like this. No other religious leader, no other religious system, not in Islam, not in Hebrew Israelites, not in Buddhism. No other system of belief has a Savior who's fully God and fully man, who can live the life you're supposed to live and die the death you deserve to die. It's only Jesus. And so the reason that, that you're going to be restless until you rest in him is because nothing else can take away your sin. Nothing else can take away your shame. No one else can deal with your separation between you and God. It's going to be Jesus and him alone. You can keep trying to find your, your rest in your job. You can keep trying to find it in your next high. You can keep trying to find it in your relationships. You can keep trying to find it with your kids. But there will be no rest to your restlessness except in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. This is what's happening. And so he is the only way. How do we receive this rest? How do we receive his offer? This is the last point, the necessity of repentance, the necessity of repentance. Look at verse 29. Paul goes on to say to the, to the men at Athens, he says this, being then God's offering, our offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Listen to this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Listen, Paul stops and he tells them, this unknown God that I'm making known to you, he's unlike any of your idols. Right? He's not made by human hands. He's, he's not formed with art or imagination. He's unlike any of those other idols. But here's the thing. He's also unlike all the idols because of the way the idols relate to you. What do I mean by that? Every idol is going to relate to you on a performance relationship. Right? Every idol that you worship, whether it's money or children or success or control, whatever it is, is going to say, if you perform, you will receive. Right? If you invest wisely with your money, you're going to receive wealth. If you parent well in your parenting, you're going to receive wonderful children. Right? These are the things that your idols tell you. And if you perform, you might receive, but often the idols will overpromise and underdeliver almost every time. But every time, every time it's a performance relationship. You perform, you receive. And what Paul says, listen to this, Paul says the, the difference between your idols and the one true God is it's not based on performance. It's not based on performance. He says God has, has been waiting in these times of ignorance, he says. He, he's been letting you worship your idols, live your life, pursue whatever you want to pursue, but he's waiting, he's inviting you in and saying there's a different relationship that you can have with the one true God, and it's not based on performance, it's based on repentance. What's the difference? The difference between performance and repentance is performance is all about what you do. Repentance is all about the direction you're going. See, repentance is not about performance. It's about direction. It's, it's not about proving. It's about turning around. It's saying, I was going this way, but now I'm going this way. In other words, repentance is a reorientation to Jesus. It's a reorientation to Jesus. 
There's a tiny town in the western tip of uh, Labrador, Canada called Wabush. And at its peak, uh, this tiny town had about 20,000 people. Right? It is still a small town, but then it began to decline and it got down to less than 2,000 people in this tiny town. And it happened over decades because really there wasn't a lot of ways to get to Wabush and there wasn't a lot of ways to leave Wabush. And so a lot of people didn't want to live there. The only way you could really get there was through an airplane, a snowmobile, or walking. That's it. Like there, there were literally no roads into the town to get there or to leave. And so people just didn't want to live there. They started leaving and, and not coming back. And so uh, in the 1980s, the, the city decided that they would build a road called the Trans-Labrador Highway. And it stretched about 700 miles to go through this wilderness that, that cut across to the, to the town. And uh, the locals called the road the Freedom Road. The Freedom Road, because it was the road that got you out of town. You could actually go see other people. There are other civilizations out in the world. And so they called it the Freedom Road because it was literally the only road into this place. And you had to travel on the road six to eight hours to get anywhere. But listen, here's, here's my point. If you, drive, if you drove six hours and you realized you forgot something at your house... The only way to go was to stop, turn around, and go back. It's, a one, it's just one road. There's one way. And that, listen, that is the picture of repentance in the Bible. The picture of repentance is not, I have to do more, I have to be more, I have to prove more, I have to show God that I mean business. The picture of repentance is I stop, I turn around, and I go the other way towards Jesus. Right? The question I want to leave us with today is, do you need to reorient your search for God toward Jesus? That, that's what Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the only way, but this is the way of grace. This is the way of, of salvation. This is the way of transformation. The only way that you can have it is not if you prove yourself or you perform for some idol. The way you can have it is if you come to me. You come to me and in me is life. In me is hope. In me is forgiveness. In me is transformation. That's the good news of the gospel is it's not based on your performance. It's based on his grace. And so he says, come. There's only one way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have called us on this way. You've called us to, to move towards you because you've already moved towards us. Lord Jesus, you've come from heaven to earth to live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. You've died in our place. You've, you've taken all of our sin, all of our guilt, our shame on yourself so that you can give us life. And so our, our hope is not in what we can do. It's not in what we can say or, or perform, but it is in you and you alone. And so, Lord Jesus, as we wander around in the dark, trying to feel our way towards you, worshiping idols made by human hands, worshiping our money, worshiping our relationships, worshiping our success, whatever it may be, God, we ask that you would help us repent, to stop, to turn around, and to go your direction, to move towards the direction of real life, real 
fulfillment, real forgiveness and mercy and grace and hope. God, move us in that direction. I pray for every one of us, Lord, whether we are in this room as as people who already put our trust in you and we need to repent of whatever it may be and come to you, or whether for the first time we are considering, stopping, turning around and heading towards you. Lord, I pray that we would find you full of grace, full of truth. We thank you in the name of Christ.